Experience the beauty and emotion of Lent and Easter with Christianity Today's newest devotional, Easter, in the everyday. Thoughtful readings from a variety of pastors, theologians, and writers invite you into the emotional stages of Christ's journey, from humility to hope to love. Beginning on Ash Wednesday and ending at Pentecost, this digital devotional is perfect for individual or group study. Get it today at orderct.com slash easter24. This episode is brought to you in part by Richmond Graduate University. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly. Richmond Graduate University can equip you to become a licensed professional counselor, integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmond.edu. Hello, this is Russell Moore, and you're listening to Signposts. This is where we gather uh, every week to have conversations about all sorts of different topics. Uh, if you listen to the Russell Moore podcast, the other podcast, you'll know we're going chapter by chapter through the book of Genesis right now and answering your moral dilemmas that you're facing and talking about country music and the gospel through the cross and the jukebox. Uh, but here on Signposts, we talk to thinkers and leaders and uh, and others about those pointers toward grace, what Walker Percy would call signposts in a strange land. And my guest today, I, I would imagine everybody listening to this uh, podcast knows, and that's Max Lucado, teaching minister of Oak Hills Christian Church in San Antonio, Texas. And he is the author of Too Many Books to Count, but the latest one is called You Are Never Alone, Trust in the Miracle of God's Presence and Power. And I've really been looking forward to this conversation because Pastor Lucado, when I was in high school and college and going through a time of uh, a lot of spiritual crisis and, and tumult, uh, your books uh, God used in unbelievable ways in my life. Uh, no wonder they call him the Savior. The Applause of Heaven was one of them. Uh, and the books that you had uh, coming out at that time, they really helped me because I think I was seeing two kinds of Christianity, uh, one of them very angry and harsh and, and legalistic, and one of them uh, very uh, positive thinking, everything's going to be fine, but seemed to ignore the, the dark side of human life. And in your writing, I found something that was, um, that was resonant with the, the Bible, uh, speaking of uh, the dark side of things, but speaking about that with a pointer toward grace and joy. And so I'm just really thankful to, to have the opportunity to talk to you today. Thanks for being with us. Well, you're, you're very, very kind to, to let me be a part of your broadcast. And uh, I hold you in such high regard. You're, you help those of us who are sluggish in thought to have some clarity of thought. And we need you. We really do. I don't know if we've ever uh, I, I don't think, certainly not in our lifetime, have we ever been in such a perfect storm of chaos, you know, between the pandemic and, the, and then the economic crisis and then the racism and then also just kind of the relativism, the, 
the disenchantment with authority. It's it's just it's everything is it seems amplified uh, mm. and very very challenging. You know, I found it really interesting in reading your book. Um, there, there is a theme throughout the book. One of there are several themes. One of them is dealing with this idea of loneliness and the idea of being alone. And I thought as I was reading it, how how on target that message is right now. I think uh, several of us were talking for a long time about how we seem to be in a loneliness epidemic in American life and in in global life. And then the pandemic hit. And as you just said, seems to amplify that greatly because people are cut off from relationships with other people and they're experiencing loneliness. And I imagine that there are people who are listening right now who just feel lonely. And it, it seems to be something that's almost taboo to say that you're experiencing, because as one person said to me, if I say that I'm sad, that's one thing. If I say that I'm angry, that's another. But if I say that I'm lonely, it's almost like saying I'm a loser. What would you say to someone who's experiencing that kind of just disconnection? I think, uh, I think disconnection is a, is a word that describes how many people felt uh, before, before all this hit. You know, suicide rates were... Uh, higher than any any era uh, since immediately after World War II, uh, depression rates were higher than ever. Uh, I read last week, however, that just in the last month, uh, calls to the emotional hotline sponsored by the federal government are nine hundred times what they were this time last year. Nine hundred times, and so people are crying out for for some help and for some assistance and encouragement. So I think loneliness is a mark of our day. I, I do think that the devil doesn't want us to identify what our struggles are because he knows once we identify them, then we can bring them to Christ and, and we can uh, we can deal with them. So he wants to cloak them, you know, he wants to cover them. But it helps us to just say, you know what, this is an unprecedented time of extreme difficulty. I'm wondering, uh, I'd like to know your thoughts on this, Russell. I'm wondering if this could, however, lead to a spiritual awakening for our society. I can't say this thought is original with me. Uh, a dear friend of mine suggested it. He said, "He said, you know, it's it's like all the things that we counted on to save us are falling through. Uh, we counted on technology, and now technology can't find a vaccine. You know, we got billions of dollars and the best brains." and we can't find a vaccine. Uh, we counted on entertainment and distraction and diversion, and now all of that has been taken away. And then we counted on secularism uh, to solve our social ills. And yet, when pressed, we realize that there is a an ugly racism just subterranean, just below the surface that has never been dealt with. And so this friend of mine posited, he said, you know, maybe, uh, this is the Lord's way of saying, look what's left. Come to me, and maybe this will trigger a spiritual awakening that we so desperately need. I hope so. I think it could it could go one way or the other. I think it could be that confronting our lack of self-sufficiency could lead us to the Lord, uh, or it could lead us to another golden calf. 
Isn't that the way it yeah. usually works yeah. out? There's the it crisis really is. moments. It could lead us. Yep, yep, yep. It could lead us to despair. It really, it really could. I've really felt an urgency in my heart to get back to the simple gospel, the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, the promise of his impending return, the joy of promised heaven, the uniqueness of grace, the uniqueness of the personality of Christ. Uh, it's really been good for me because it's kind of stripped away a lot of, uh, you know, important things, but not the most important things. I found my my conversations and my preaching has have I become more urgent in in my uh, communication uh, because as far as I know people I'm talking to either online through our church pulpit or, or through my online ministry as far as I know they'll be they'll contract the condition the disease you know mm-hmm. and so it's it's really pushed a urgent button I've got my foot to the accelerator more than I have in the last few years. You know, in reading your new book, You're Never Alone, I was struck by the fact, I think when many people think of you, because most people have encountered you through your books and your preaching and, and, and so forth, but they think of you as successful uh, in, in ministry in every way. But you talk about in this book being a missionary in Brazil uh, when it seemed as though nothing uh, was working for you. And I was struck by the fact that you talk about how in those years when you when you felt as though you were a failure, that's actually where God was uh, the most at work in preparing you for, for what would come later. And I think many of us could, could say that. What would you say to somebody who is, uh, is feeling as though everything's failing and comparing himself or herself to somebody else and saying, if only I could have the family situation or the ministry situation or the work situation or whatever of somebody else. And they're in that cycle of comparison and and just feel as though nothing can go right. Yeah. I sure wouldn't want to leave the impression ever that uh, uh, that I perceive myself as a success. I honestly don't. I mean, I'm, I'm very, very grateful. I'm very, very grateful. But I've, I've never really lost sight of the fact that I was a drunk uh, and I was a I was a womanizer uh, and I was a brawler. By the time I was 20 years of age, I was in a car headed off a cliff. And I, 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 I just still am amazed that, that God not only would forgive me, but he would let me uh, be a part of his kingdom. Uh, soon after I became a, a, a disciple, when I was, that happened when I was 20 years old. And, and it happened primarily through the influences and friends at college who were uh, training to be missionaries. And they were all headed to Brazil to be missionaries. And so when I uh, committed my life to Christ, I said, I want to go where you guys go. And I ended up in Brazil, my wife and I did, for most of the 80s. Um, and we moved to Rio de Janeiro when we were so young, no kids, you know, uh, just kind of fresh out of seminary and trying to a little too cocky, I think, for our own good. And we hung out, a hung out a sign, you know, we rented this little storefront and we put a sign up. And I don't know why we thought anybody would want to come to church with a bunch of young gringos who could barely speak Portuguese. And uh, they didn't. They didn't. I think in the book I mentioned there were many, many weekends, many Sundays. There were more Americans in our church service than Brazilians. <laughs> and we would just sit and look at each other and say, what are we doing? 
And it was rough. It was rough the first couple of years. It led to tension between the missionaries, to doubts, to struggles. And finally, uh, uh, one one of the missionaries uh, said, no, maybe we're just not preaching the gospel. And you talk about something that, you know, no missionary wants to hear that. But I think I think we'd gotten off track and we were teaching a type of a church instead of a Christ. And so we redoubled our effort to understand the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. And it was through that that those difficult and dark years, dark, I'd say months, uh, Russell, maybe almost two years or a year and a half. It was during those tough times that, at least in my life, I came to really appreciate the wonderful story, the tireless and beautiful story that Jesus Christ came and died for sinners, of which I'm the I'm the first, and that he's he promises absolute forgiveness of sins, and he carved a, a unique to him pathway to heaven that is uh, free of any self-salvation, and that he guarantees, he buckles us in uh, to, the, to the cockpit and says, I'll get you home. It's just such a beautiful story of grace. And so it was during, I think I had to go through that time of, of discouragement to really discover grace for my own life. And I've found that true throughout the years, you know, when when we go through tough times, it's God talking to us and saying, I'm trying to shave this away, or I'm trying to hone this ability within you. And so I would say to that person, just don't don't be discouraged. Uh, Your heavenly father is working out a, a perfect plan in your life to stay faithful, do the next right thing, and just believe, I believe that uh, there will be a breakthrough, be a breakthrough. And quit comparing yourself with others. All of us are unique. Nobody's like anybody else. Comparison's the poison pill of ministry. If we can just be content in our own uh, unique assignment, then I think we'll find more joy. How were you able to tell where God was leading you? Because I'm, I'm trying to imagine if, if you called me, and you were that 20-something-year-old missionary to Brazil, I think one of the things I would grapple with is whether to tell you, seek where the Lord has for you next, as, as you did, or to say, just keep persevering and, and, and spreading the word there in Brazil. How did you know where God wanted you to, to be? Boy, what a perceptive question, Russell. I mean, we're, we're all, uh, especially in our, our early years, trying to figure out the next a right step. I really think that uh, there is something about discerning your unique skills, your unique to you skills, and realizing that God loves you too much to give you an assignment and not to give you the skills with which to do them. So if you look at your skills, you know, like Russell, I, I, you and I don't know each other super well. I hope we can get to know each other better. But I perceive that you have this unique ability to at one hand hold a Bible in one hand and the newspaper in the next, you know, the the, the culture of our day in the next. And you have a way of guiding us, you know, through balancing, uh, not just as a theologian, but also as a keen observer of society. Well, that probably comes easier for you than it does about 99.9% of us. And, and I think you, when you, you you probably discovered that at some point, I'd love to hear, maybe you discovered it, you know, at some point in your life and you thought, well, I could do this. I could do this. I, I could help do that. 
And and so I just signed up uh, really kind of blindly as saying, I'll go wherever God leads me. And I was serious. I was serious. I would have gone anywhere. We actually considered China as missionaries and then ended up going to Brazil. I would have been happy to go to China. When I got to Brazil, I realized, Russell, that really writing was came easier for me than cross-cultural communication. I really struggled with the Portuguese language. Uh, I felt a little disjointed living outside of the country, but I, I, I love to write. I love to write. And so after our, we committed for five years to be in Brazil. So at the end of those five years, by then I had finished uh, three books, I think. Yeah, three books and was on, on, on working on number four. And I said, okay, I just think I need to go someplace where I don't have to preach in Portuguese and then write in English. And so it made sense to come back to the U.S. So I guess I say all that to say I signed up for whatever and I found out what my unique strength was. And then I looked for a place in which I could really put it to use. Hmm. You know, one of the most poignant uh, parts of, of this new book is when you talk about uh, being a, a child and experiencing something that a lot of people have experienced, which is uh, childhood sexual abuse from a, a trusted adult. And I was really moved when you, you talk about in the book uh, coming home and trying to find Jesus in the kitchen and, and finding him near to you. And again, I know there are a lot of people who listen to this, uh, to signposts, who, uh, who have experienced the same thing. And I hear from a lot of them, and a lot of them will say that one of the things that they grapple with is a sense of shame and blaming themselves. And as one young woman said to me, she knows intellectually that this was not her fault, but she finds it very hard to know that at the heart level and to, to feel as though Jesus is with her. She knows he's here, but but to feel that way. How would you advise somebody who's been through something like that to, to find the presence of Jesus near them? Thank you for bringing that up. And uh, it's not that I never wanted to tell that story. It just never seemed appropriate, Russell. But uh, this, as I was working on this book, uh, trying to help people uh, come to a, uh, an understanding of how to process the pain in their life, I thought, I'm just going to share what was... Uh, what could have been the most devastating moment of my life, but it really turned it or devastating series of moments, but it turned into a moment of, of redemption. Uh, just to briefly summarize what happened, I was a 12 year old uh, and a man in our small community in West Texas befriended a cluster of us kids, maybe five or six guys. And uh, uh, my dad knew him, uh, several dads knew him. Uh, he just wanted, he didn't have any sons of his own and, and he loved, he skipped saying, I just love hanging out with the guys. And so we'd play baseball. Uh, we'd, we'd, we'd go on camping trips and it was on one of those camping trips that he, he showed up with a bunch of whiskey and worked his way from sleeping bag to sleeping bag and, uh, just left all of us feeling, uh, uh, I don't know, invaded, uh, and, and, and he told us not to tell anybody because, Nobody would believe us, and so I didn't know what to do. It was, it's just, it, it, was, it was just demonic. It was demonic. Mm -hmm. So I came home that Sunday afternoon after that weekend, 
uh, our church that morning had had a communion service. Uh, even though I wasn't really walking with the Lord as a young man, I was going to church. And uh, I felt like I needed a communion service. And so my parents, uh, I waited till my parents were in bed. I'd had a shower. I couldn't feel clean. I just felt filthy. And uh, I went in the bath, in, I'm sorry, into the kitchen. And uh, I looked for grape juice and crackers and I uh, couldn't find any. And so I found some potatoes and some milk. Uh, mm. and, and I created my own little communion service there. And I've got this memory uh, of, a, of a tw- myself as a 12-year-old, uh, freshly showered, standing there in my pajamas, feeling very dirty, uh, feeling violated, and uh, asking Jesus to, to, to meet me, to forgive me. And uh, Russell, I believe Jesus appeared to me. I, I just do. I, I sensed his presence. I sensed uh, something comforting, uh, an assurance. I felt a love in my heart. Uh, I don't know what to say beyond that. And I, and I don't want to, I've not shared that up until now because I don't want people to think, well, I didn't feel that. So I'm not valid. Yeah. Uh, but that moment for me uh, really offset the, the, the violation of that gentleman in my life. And, and when I was 20 years old and wanting to come back to Christ, I remembered that moment, and I've often thought of that moment as a moment in which Christ showed me that he's there. Now, most of the times that I have felt separated or lonely or far from God, I, I don't have a visitation like I had in the kitchen. Uh, but you know what? That's okay. I mean, I trust him. I trust him. And I'm, I'm just going to believe that sometimes when the feeling's not there, I'm my, the facts are. And Jesus said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. And I'm going to stand on those facts. Did it take a while to realize that? Because as you said, I, I asked him to to forgive me. And of course, you and I know, looking back now, uh, there was nothing to forgive you for. You were the, the, the victim here. But a lot of people feel that way. Did it take a, a while for you to realize that this was not something wrong with you? This was something that had been done to you? In that case, Russell... The answer would be no. Uh, it came quickly. Now, as I've talked to people as a pastor through the years, you're absolutely right. Many people struggle and they, they continue to blame themselves. And, and I wonder if my case was slightly different because it was a one-time event. Uh, I talked to people who, who've, uh, you know, grew up in a, you know, a, a home in which that was an ongoing struggle. And, and it's, it's a whole different level uh, to them. I will say that as I was a, you know, a high schooler and that I, I was uh, just really disrespectful of women, that when I wanted to, the struggle for me at an early man, at an early age was that would God forgive me? That was my struggle. Would God forgive me for that, for, for those sexual improprieties? And uh, finally, I just, it, it came for me, Russell, it came down to the fact that you know, if he doesn't, I don't have any hope. <laughs> I don't have any hope. And it was, a, it was a matter of really being the prodigal son, casting myself on the goodness of the Father, just acknowledging, Lord, I've blown it. And, uh, and I just, I don't, have, I don't have a plan B, if you don't forget. I don't have a plan B. And so I, it's, it's a sense of just casting myself into the, into the arms of God, and I believe he catches us. Hmm. You you talk a lot in the book about miracles. This is sort of the the framing uh, 
device of the book is is various miracles from the uh, water to wine at Cana uh, all the way through to uh, the multiplication of the loaves and uh, presence in the storm and and so forth. Uh, and yet, of course, miracles are often the hardest thing for people to believe. Thomas Jefferson uh, went through and cut all the miracles out of the out of his Bible and was left just with just with the teaching. And there are a lot of people who have even believers in Jesus who face doubt, maybe not doubt about about the facts of the gospel, but sometimes doubt about themselves. And am I really forgiven by God? Am I really loved by God? And all of those things. You talk in the book about doubt and about uh, the, the fact that faith does not mean that you're not grappling uh, with, with doubt. Uh, what would you say to the person who really thinks something's wrong because they're constantly having to wrestle with uh, the, those sorts of doubts? What sort of encouragement would you have for them? I would introduce them to the poster child of doubt. <laughs> you know, <laughs> Thomas, you know, what a classic story. Some days I really relate with Peter, the one who denied Christ, and then I relate with Thomas, the one who doubted Christ, and uh, how patient of Christ to make a special appearance to Thomas. You know, when, when Jesus appeared on Easter Sunday in the upper room, Thomas wasn't present, don't know why. And so he had his doubts. He, 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 he didn't believe the others. And they, they told him they had seen him. And he still said, I won't believe until I touch Jesus Christ. I'll touch the hands in the side. And uh, how patient of Christ to say, okay, I'm going to make a, a special appearance to Thomas. It's as if he says, I know it must be difficult to believe. I know it must be difficult. And so I tend to think, Russell, that that questions come with faith. Uh, Questions are just a part of developing a faith. Don't don't feel bad for having questions. See each question as a step that will take you closer, higher, uh, more in the proximity of Christ. I think it would be the devil who would want to, to say to you, if you have questions, that means you have no faith. No, no, no. Faith, faith is is simply the willingness to wrestle with your questions uh, in the presence of God and, and to and to bring them uh, in, into Him. And and you know what? I look back over my life and I've I've realized that I've kind of moved from different questions to different questions, and I'll, I'll, I'll struggle. This is last couple of years. I think I've uh, had a lot of questions about the Holy Spirit, understanding who he is, what he does. And I've realized that there was a there was just a vacant part of my heart when it came to understanding the Holy Spirit. And and so I made him my quest. I wanted to understand him. Uh, These days, I'm trying to understand more and more about the return of Christ what can I look forward to? What can I? What's a matter of opinion? What's a matter of, of fact? So it, it, I think we're all working through just different parts of our of our faith. Does that make any sense yeah. at all? I think there are some people who are especially disturbed when they see. It, it seems that we've had several very high profile uh, Christian leaders over the, just the past couple years who have ended up not in a in a scandal, we've, we've seen that many times before, but actually walking away from the faith and saying, I've decided I'm not a Christian, or I've decided I'm an atheist or an agnostic. And uh, I think that's really rattling 
to some people who who live the normal Christian life of of grappling with doubt and unanswered questions and and so forth, but who wonder is that is that where I'm going to end up? You know, that's why uh, we have to build our faith on our relationship with Jesus Christ. Uh, I can absolutely guarantee that someone you look up to is going to uh, claim to fall away from the faith. I can guarantee it. Or you're going to be surprised. You're going to be surprised. You know, I can recall uh, so clearly a man that I looked up to who asked to have an appointment with me. And he's he came into my office and he and, and I really I still love him. He's in heaven now. But, but, but he came in to see me and he said, I got to tell you, my wife just found out that uh, I was having an affair last year. It's about to come public. And I just I just almost collapsed, Russell. Because this, I held this man in such high esteem. That's going to happen. I'm just sorry. It's it's just going to happen. And I've realized uh, the only the only person in in my life who's never let me down is Jesus. He really hasn't. And and I believe that he rose from the dead. I believe that they could have if they could have produced his cadaver, they would have. I believe the reason that Peter could stand up on the day of Pentecost and proclaim a, a gospel. Uh, that would change people's lives is because nobody could refute him. Nobody could refute him. And I believe that the Holy Spirit fell upon the world that day in a way that uh, was unprecedented. And so I've come to develop a faith that's not contingent upon one of my friends or one of my mentors believing, because that's a dangerous kind of faith. You know, it is. And and uh, you and I have been around long enough that, that people that we love and cherish and all of a sudden, we find out that they did this or they didn't really believe. That's just that's going to happen. That's going to happen. So make it your aim to, you know, attach your anchor to Christ and Christ alone. You talk a lot in the book about unanswered prayer. And I think that's one thing that can drive people to those moments of doubt because uh, they read where Jesus says, if you ask for anything in my name, I will give it to you. Uh, if you knock, I'll open. You seek, you'll find. And they say, I've been praying and praying and praying for whatever. And it's it's just never happened. And I, how how would somebody know when it's time to see God's not answering my prayer because he's redirecting me or God's not answering my prayer because he wants me to continue to, to ask and to seek? Well, you ask such great questions. I see why your why your podcast is so popular. Uh, you, you know, it was a good day for me when somebody explained to me that prayer is not so much asking God to do what I want as it is asking God to do what is right, uh, believing that He knows better than I what is what is uh, best for me. And the greatest prayer is the prayer Jesus prayed in the garden, and that is, "Not my will, but Thine be done." And so those those are my fundamental ideas that I bring into prayer. I believe that it, God wants me to ask him for what I want. I'm praying urgently for this pandemic to be lifted. I'm praying urgently for some friends of mine who are sick. I'm praying urgently for a, a dear friend of mine who's asking that God would give him a wife. Uh, and I'm praying urgently. Uh, and I believe God hears our prayers. I do believe that there is an overarching will that I cannot change. You know, the fact that 
the Christ, the world is going to have a, a dualistic outcome. There'll be a heaven, there'll be a hell. I do believe that I can't change whether or not the world has a savior or not. I wasn't consulted on that. Jesus determined that before I was born. But I do believe that in some way, my prayers can move Christ into maybe acting sooner, like when Mary uh, told Jesus they have no more wine. It does seem that he did not intend that day to to perform a miracle, and yet her honest uh, declaration of need activated him uh, uh, to to respond to this problem. And so all that to say, if I can believe that God is a good God and that prayer is not so much asking God to do what I want but what is right, then I make my requests, and I know I'm absolutely confident that even his no is a yes, or even his his delay, what seems to me as a delay, is really right on time. Uh, and so everything comes back to just trusting the character of God and believing that he'll respond in the right time in the right way. This is Max Lucado, author of the new book, You Are Never Alone, Trust in the Miracle of God's Presence and Power. And Max Lucado, I just want to say to you on behalf of teenage Russell Moore all the way through to present day Russell Moore, I'm glad that you had trouble learning Portuguese and uh, were, were forced to write uh, because your writing has been a, a, an immense blessing to me and to millions of other people, and I'm grateful. Thanks for being with us today. You're so kind. Thank you, and God bless you. Thanks for listening today to Signposts. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or Stitcher or wherever you listen and check out the Russell Moore podcast there as well. It helps if you leave a review. If you like the podcast, that helps people to find it. And if you're listening on a smartphone, tap the cover art and you'll find the show notes with some other resources you might have missed, including how you can get uh, a hold of this uh, book by Max Lucado and other resources. This is Russell Moore, and you're listening to Signposts.